Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Gorton, CEO of Recuro Health, a virtual healthcare company that's raised over $15 million in funding. Mike, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit about your amazing background in this space. So I'm a 14-time serial entrepreneur. I keep doing it over and over again just because it's fun. Amongst those, Internet Global which did really well, obviously Teladoc, which did really well, and several others along the way. Amazing. And let's talk about the early days of Teladoc here before we expand the interview. I know just in the pre-interview, we're talking about some crazy stories. So let's maybe start with that. For those who don't know, can you give us a little bit of the background on Teladoc? And then let's talk about some of those early days and the experiences that you had. All right. You're going to really appreciate this. So I sold a company in 99, made a lot of money, called a bunch of friends, said, I'm climbing Kilimanjaro, I'll pay all the expenses. So while climbing Kilimanjaro, one of my climbing partners was a medical doctor, electrical engineer. And he was fascinated with, oh, wow, you can build a company, sell it, make money. So he started talking about what ended up becoming Teladoc. So the whole idea was created while climbing Kilimanjaro. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And what were the next steps you guys took? You know, after you get off Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, what did you do? How did you start the company? We spent a little bit of time figuring out how to build the company. And the good thing is Dr. Brooks was very, very careful. He felt like we needed to make sure we understood corporate practice of medicine issues. What were the drug laws in the 50 states? Let's do it in a way that there wouldn't be an issue. And what we found was, why hadn't a telemedicine company been built and grown nationwide. It almost seemed to make sense. The guy who invented the whole concept is Dr. Jay Sanders, who created the idea in the 60s. He had been an evangelist for telemedicine for 30 plus years. So why hadn't it happened? Well, Dr. Brooks and I found out after we had tested it for two years and we were ready to go prime time, we go to the board of medical examiners and they say, Mr. Gordon, you build this, you will go to prison. And Dr. Brooks will take your license and then you'll go to prison. Okay, that's a good challenge for entrepreneurs. You know, now we understand why it had never been done before. (laughs) Yeah, prison is a pretty good deterrent, I think, from uh, from not pursuing a business model. (laughs) Yep, Yep, that's exactly right. Crazy. How did you overcome that? Did you have to hire lobbyists and try to change the laws? Or what were you able to do to make sure you avoided prison in those early days? Right, right. So we kind of looked at what other people had done. And we found other examples of companies that had come in and they took the obvious path. Lawyers, guns and money. Well, maybe not guns, but lawyers and money, right? And, (laughs) And tried to fight the boards of medical examiners. And behind my desk, I have a little plaque that says, judge, jury, executioner. And people come into my office and they go, oh, you're a judge, jury, and executioner? And I go, no. Actually, it's the boards of medical examiners. That's to remind me of the battle because they have their own court system. If they don't like what you're doing, you don't win. And we figured that out pretty quickly. And so we said, 
Let's convince them with logic and thought leadership. Let's find their pain points and show how we're solving them. That's how we launch the telemedicine industry, by being compliant and creating thought leadership. And were their concerns really focused on keeping patients safe? Or was this more something similar to Uber faced with the taxi associations where, you know, they were very used to having a monopoly and they did not want to open up competition to a a company like Uber? Do you think that was their view? I think for the most part, they were concerned about safety. I think they were concerned that they were going to open the door to physicians treating patients they had never touched and that the quality and standards of care would decrease with this new kind of medicine. And we worked really hard on the front end to make sure that didn't happen. And I think part of our thought leadership and conversations with the boards, 17 different states did serve notice on us. And so we would fly in and and have conversations with them. But at the end of the day, our position was always This is why it's good for you. This is why it's good for the physicians. This is why it's good for the patients in this state. And for the most part, they agreed. There were a couple of states that were just adamant. Nope, these are the laws you can't practice here. Do you happen to remember what would be like the most difficult state that you were interacting with back then? Well, I never named the states, but um, (laughs) one state hired an actor to try and trick one of our doctors into writing a prescription for OxyContin. The physician would not do that. And it was like, crying and saying, you know, it's two days before Christmas and my doctor's on vacation until New Year's and I'm in pain and it's Christmas, right? And the doctor said, well, I'll write you a prescription for ibuprofen. And that state decided to file charges against that doctor for writing a prescription for ibuprofen. That's how adamant some of the states were. And we didn't know at the time that it was an actor. To us, it was a patient. And we were negotiating with them. And in one of our negotiating sessions, one of the members of that board said, well, our actor said this. And I'm like, everybody's under oath. And I'm, wait, actor or patient? What is he? And <laughs> it doesn't matter. What you did was illegal in our state. And I go, yeah, but so was entrapment. You can't hire <laughs> actors to trick doctors. And they didn't care. So we called the local newspaper. The no- local newspaper did a full page article on it. And it just disappeared. They decided, okay, okay we don't want to fight this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and was it a prescription required back then for ibuprofen? Well, prescription strength, a little bit bigger pill, right? And yeah. prescription strength, I guess, means that maybe your insurance will cover it. But yeah, I mean, you could buy a bottle of ibuprofen and take four of them or take one of these big horse pills. I don't know. No, <laughs> no but that particular state, their position was no doctor should write a prescription to any patient that they haven't touched. Mm, got it. Amazing. And the last part of this story I'd love to dig into is, you know, the DEA. I know you mentioned oh, yeah. visit. Can you talk yeah. us through that joyful experience? Yeah, the, the DEA <laughs> is one of the classic stories. You know, you never want the DEA to come into your office with guns and badges. And they did to ours one day. And, you know, I'm at the end of a long hallway. So imagine everybody in the building knows the DEA is there with their guns and badges. And I'm now walking down the hallway So I'm sure some people were thinking, I've got to go home. I'm not feeling too well today, or my kids are sick, or didn't I mean to take vacation today? (laughs) So their position was they believed we had been writing prescriptions for narcotics, which we built a very solid engine to prevent that. But they were determined to discover that we were, and they spent three months 
going through files. And at the end of that time, finding nothing, the DEA agent said to me, you know what? We didn't find anything. You guys are clear and we love Teladoc. We need to add it for our agents who are constantly traveling. Wow. Amazing. So turned into a customer acquisition channel then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Turn those terrible things into something positive. Yeah. The obstacle is the way. <laughs> nice. And how have you seen telemedicine you know, evolve? We go back to you know, 2002 to today. You know, How have you seen this space evolve? One of my mentors, when I started Teladoc, had built some huge companies, one of which had gotten to $4 billion. And when we started Teladoc, he said, well, what's your goal? And I said, well, Nathan, I kind of want to beat you. Maybe we can get to $4 billion. And he said, well, I don't know, maybe that's probably not going to happen. But what ended up happening was we created a quarter trillion dollar industry. And we have to give credit for the concept to Jay Sanders and what he did many, many decades ago. But we figured out how to make the hard part, the legal challenges go away. And, you know, from my chair, it was constant battles. Investors are always saying, you know, what keeps you up at night? And before Teladoc, you know, I'm the intrepid adventurer. Nothing keeps me up at night. Well, you know what? When the people start coming into your office with guns, that'll keep you up at night. But the end result is a company that at its high, Teladoc was at $30 billion. And coming into the pandemic, we had an engine that was able to take care of people remotely. And I think everybody appreciated that. And I think it was really 2020 when everybody really saw the value. And didn't some of the laws change in 2020? I don't know if that's accurate, but I believe I read that somewhere that you know, laws were changed to really open the doors for telemedicine during COVID. There was only one state remaining that was convinced that all telemedicine physicians should go to prison <laughs> and coming into the COVID epidemic. Mm -hmm. And there were two battles. We chose one of them. So the two battles were, is it appropriate for a physician to treat a patient they've never touched? And we felt like, yes, that can be done. And in fact, it's always been done since the invention of the telephone. Doctors have something called cross coverage. And so if you're a physician and I'm a physician and Susan is your patient, but I'm covering for you on Tuesday and Thursday nights, she reaches me. I've never met her. I've never touched her, but that's okay. I don't have her medical record. I don't have any way of letting you know that I've communicated with her. I don't get paid if I do. She could still sue me if something bad goes wrong. And so it was all broken, the cross coverage model. So we fixed that. So physician treating patient they've never touched. That was one of the battles. The other battle is, is it appropriate for a New York-based physician to talk to somebody in Oklahoma? And I'm not talking about, we all know people in Oklahoma are different, but that's a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> my, chair, my chairman is from Oklahoma, so. <laughs> but the practice of interstate medicine, a physician in New York treating a patient outside of that was a battle I didn't want to fight. And just knowing how the boards of medical examiners work, they control medicine in their state. If we allow interstate medicine to occur, then they lose control. And I just didn't think that was a battle I could win under any circumstances. So we chose the physician not touching the patient, but having appropriate contact through medical records and communication. Makes sense. 
And mm-hmm. in those early days and, you know, today or just, you know, across your entire career, what are your views when it comes to the idea of category creation? Because it sounds like maybe you weren't the first one to come up with the idea of telemedicine, but I think you could argue that, you know, you guys did dominate that category and you know, were the leader of that category and you know, were certainly the pioneers of that space. So do you have any thoughts, you know, for other companies and founders just about category creation in general? Well, I think if you're going to create a category, you have to recognize that you're now a disruptor and it's not easy. The thing is, great ideas die on the vine all the time because something was missing and it's almost always persistence. So imagine when Dr. Brooks and I walked into the board of medical examiners and they said, you're going to prison. That would have ended it for just about everybody. Um, (laughs) You have to be pretty determined to get through many of the hurdles that entrepreneurs need to to um, cover. And so if I was talking to any entrepreneur, I would say, you know, you need a great plan. That's the first P. You need great people. That's mm-hmm. the second P. And you need persistence. Amazing. And for category creation, is that something that you advise, you know, the companies that you invest in to pursue? Or do you normally recommend that they try to chip away into an existing category? Or does it just really depend on the market? I think it depends on the idea and the market. So to build a billion-dollar company, you don't have to create a new category. You just do something better. And you could say that we created a new category. We really didn't. Again, you know, Jay Sanders is the one who created the category. We just figured out how to implement it. And yeah, we had to build the medical records and the national network of doctors and all of the other things. They had never been built before, but it wasn't because people lacked the expertise. It's because every time they had tried, they didn't figure out how to get through the hurdle of the regulatory issues. So again, if you're building something, you don't have to create a category. Got it. Makes sense. And that's super helpful advice, I think, for a lot of founders. Now, to transition here a little bit, I know you're in the the hot seat again as CEO of Recuro Health. So can you give us a high-level overview of what the company's doing and and why you decided to, to jump in again? So if you look at what Teladoc accomplished, you can pick up a telephone, get into a queue and have a doctor call you in a couple minutes. But why are you doing it? Because you're sick. And so this is what we call reactive care. I'm sick. I need to talk to somebody. And I'll give you a really good example. I don't feel well. Yesterday, I was playing kickball with my kids. I was out with my wife, having fun doing stuff. I don't feel well. I go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have stage four cancer. What? How did I go from all that fun stuff to something that is going to be very painful, maybe even a death sentence? What happened to stage one? What happened to stage two? You know, why is this pain that I'm feeling stage four? You know, why isn't the healthcare system designing something that can catch it before it becomes dangerous and expensive? And that's what Rikiro is doing. You know, we're taking the engine that we built with Teladoc. And there's something called virtual primary care that's beginning to evolve. And I think, you know, Rikiro is probably the leader in it. We do it better than everybody else. But we're adding things that nobody else is doing. We call it a digital medical home. But our goal is to be preemptive. We want to know Brett has a hereditary proclivity for something. And we're going to keep our eye on it. We're going to catch that stage four cancer before it becomes stage one. We're going to catch that diabetes before you have major medical issues and expenses because of it. So 
that's the next generation. That's what we're creating now is preemptive care. And how do you define that category? Is it preemptive care? Is it virtual primary care? Is it telemedicine? You know, what is the category today? It's really all of the above. In order to do it right, you have to have a focused assessment on the individual. So you're different even from your kids. And mm-hmm. so we need to understand to the nth degree every potential issue you might have. But we also need to provide you with a set of tools that allows you to stay healthy. And, you know, people are thinking there's going to be a magic pill I can take that makes me live forever. And and I just don't think that's going to happen. I do think that we're going to get to a point in time where we'll be able to win against most diseases, prevent most diseases, and live a very, very long time in a very healthy way. But it's not going to happen because of one pill. It's going to happen because we're doing 30 things on a regular basis. It's kind of like if you think about your car, you don't just fill the gas tank up. You change the oil, you fill the fluids up, you check the tires. There's so many things that you have to do to keep that car running. And the same thing is going to be with how we maintain this human body. Right now, we're waiting until we have the sort of analogous blowout of our tires That's our stage four cancer. Imagine going down the highway at 75 miles an hour. You haven't ever checked your tires and one of them blows out. Why don't you run out of gas all the time? Because you have a gauge, but you don't have a gauge for your body. You don't have a gauge for your physiology, for your health. What we're going to do, not going to, we are building and selling an engine that is like your gas gauge. We're going to make sure you don't run out of gas. Amazing. And are you selling then to the patients or is it selling to the doctors? Oh, that would be so painful selling to the patients. You know, Brett, in the (laughs) beginning of Teladoc, that's kind of what I was doing, you know, picking up the phone and telling my friends and saying, hey, I got this great new benefit. You know, you can get a doctor on the phone. (laughs) But the great thing about Teladoc is we brought in a brilliant man named John Halsey who helped us architect our way from calling friends and family to actually signing the contract with that. So the business model for Recuro is actually three separate categories. We're selling to the brokers and the TPAs. Mm-hmm. We are selling to the enterprise Fortune 500 companies. Mm-hmm. And we haven't sold to yet, but we're working on selling to the managed care organizations, those Blue Crosses and Uniteds and the Aetnas of the world. Amazing. And you launched last year. How much traction have you seen so far that you're okay with sharing? Well, I'll tell you this. We just last month got named Entrepreneur of the Year. Normally, Ernst & Young requires two years of revenue. We didn't get it, but our growth was so significant that they said, you win anyway. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Again, I've built 14 companies. I've never seen anything grow like this before. Wow, that must be exciting. It is. And if we zoom out into the future, what do you think telemedicine and virtual care will look like, say, five years from now? And what role do you think you'll play in shaping that future and defining that future? Well, again, I think Teladoc, in, in spite of their financial crises they delivered this year, is still the leader. And why is that? I don't know if Jason, the current CEO, would agree with me on this, but I think the reason is 
way back in the beginning, we became the thought leaders. You know, we started in 02. By 05, we started seeing competition. And the funny part is the competition was Consoldadoc and Phonadoc and Dialadoc, you know. So Ameridoc, all of those followers were in the footsteps partly of the engine that we built, but the thought leadership. And I think the thought leadership is what's prevailing. And we're doing the same thing again with Recuro. So when I look out at the next couple of years, what I want to be able to do is have an engine that's proven and saving people dollars, catching those cancers at stage one, catching heart disease before you have that first heart attack. But the other thing is, Brett, when you think about what are the things that we need to do to make sure that you're healthy and strong, mm -hmm. those are the things that will help you live longer. And, you know, there's a very fanciful phrase that's going around right now, which is mostly not true. And that is 60 is the new 40. What I'd like to see in 10 years is 100 is the new 30. And wow. I mean, truly 100 is the new 30. So imagine what you looked like at 30. Imagine the kind of mountains you were able to climb or skiing you were able to do or bicycling or whatever that you were able to do at 30. To be able to perform on that same level, not with the old lost gray hair and wrinkled skin, but looking like you look at 30, the same kind of energy. So I think there's probably 30 things that you would have to do right now to get there. And um, we're working with one of the preeminent longevity physicians in the world, a man by the name of Jeff Gladden. And we're starting to create the thought leadership that will get us to that point. So what happens to our economic system when people are 80 years old and they're as strong as they were at 30? They're not going to be retiring. They're going to be looking for the next challenge. And by finding that next challenge, their productivity is going to continue. And so what happens to technology and our economy? Just good things across the board. And how far out do you think that truly is? And you know, we won't hold you to this prediction, but if we're looking at 100 is the new 30, is that something that'll happen you know, in the next five years, 10 years? Are we 20 years out? What are your thoughts there? I think the better part of it will happen in the next 10 years. There's something called the Hayflick limit, which without going into all of the biochemistry, your cells will only divide a certain number of times. And when you hear people say, mankind is designed to live to 120, it's because of the Hayflick limit. That's a bigger problem that we're working on. And I don't think that one will be solved in 10 years. But keeping you as healthy as you were at 30, mm -hmm. if you're willing to do the things that you have to do, mm -hmm. that will happen. Amazing. That's a very, uh, very exciting way to wrap up. So, Michael, I think that's all we're going to have time here to cover, but really appreciate this conversation. I think it's the most fun and interesting conversation we've had here on Category Visionary. So uh, final question, if people want to keep up with your journey and what you're building here, where's the best place for them to go? LinkedIn. <laughs> Easy enough. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad.